Welcome to What Your GP Doesn't Tell You, the podcast for both doctors and patients with me, Liz Tucker. This week, I'm talking to psychiatrist Dr. Georgia Ede, one of the leading pioneers in the use of very low carb, otherwise known as ketogenic diets, to treat mental illness by improving metabolic health. In her new book, Change Your Diet, Change Your Mind, published by Yellow Kite, out next week on the 30th of January, Georgia suggests improvements that we can all make to our diet, and in particular, three different dietary approaches for those looking to improve their mental health. She argues that early studies using this dietary approach to treat conditions from bipolar disorder to schizophrenia show a much greater effect, in fact, six to ten times that seen in any comparative drug trial. Georgia believes the medical profession has completely underestimated the huge impact that changing metabolic health can have on mental illness and says a metabolic evaluation should be standard practice for every patient seeking psychiatric help. In her own practice, this approach has enabled her to reduce the medication many of her patients take and in some cases allowed them to come off all medication altogether. And perhaps the greatest irony of all is that the psychiatric drugs used to treat many of these mental health conditions, which Georgia argues can also be useful, can at the same time actually worsen metabolic health. So just how does a psychiatrist, or indeed any doctor, balance the benefits and risks of treatment? But before we get to Georgia's interview, a brief request from me. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to leave a review on Spotify or Apple, that would be much appreciated. It really helps. You can also become a paid supporter of the podcast at patreon.com slash you or via PayPal on my website, whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. A huge amount of work goes into both the research and production of this podcast. So even a small amount of money makes a huge difference. And you can find out more information about the pod on my website, where you can sign up for the podcast mailing list, follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker, and on my Substack account, liz.tucker.substack.com. Many thanks. Now back to the interview with Georgia. Dr. Georgia E. trained at Harvard and then worked at the Harvard University Medical Service and Smith College before setting up her own psychiatric practice in 2018, helping patients improve their mental and metabolic health by changing what they eat. Georgia was on the podcast last year discussing the results of a trial using a ketogenic diet to treat a range of psychiatric conditions. Here's her interview. So, Georgia, welcome back to the podcast. Good to see you again. Thank you very much, Liz. Thanks for inviting me back. So, Georgia, I think a good place to start our discussion. If someone has a mental health condition, you argue that while talking therapy or indeed medication can have a role, you believe that far more powerful than either of those is changing what we eat. That's exactly right. I was trained, as most psychiatrists are, in what's called the biopsychosocial model of the root causes of mental illness. We were taught that there were biological root causes, and these were related to chemical imbalances in the brain, neurotransmitters, things like serotonin and dopamine, and that those chemical imbalances were to be addressed with medication. And we were taught that there were psychosocial roots of mental illnesses, things like stress and trauma, and of course, your mother. We were trained to address those problems with psychotherapy. And I still value and use both of those in my practice every day. But we're really missing a huge piece of the puzzle. These pieces are nutrition, 
and metabolic health. We not only need to address these neurotransmitter imbalances and stressful incidences and so forth in one's life, we also need to make sure the brain is healthy and it needs to be metabolically healthy. And we need to eat in a way that will energize and nourish the brain. We're not taught anything about that in medical school or residency. And these are really powerful interventions that go right to the root causes of mental health problems, inflammation, oxidative stress, insulin resistance. These are major players in uh, all mental health conditions. I think there's probably a bit of a competition at the moment between your country and mine as to who has the worst standard diet. And I think you're, <laughs> just, I think you're just ahead of us at the moment. <laughs> we are, but you're catching up fast. So you argue in your new book that for effective brain health, we need to do three things, nourish, protect, and energize the brain. So I think perhaps if we could look first at nourishment, you say that's about ensuring that we get all the nutrients we need, whether that's a lack of vitamin B12, iron, zinc, iodine, et cetera, because they've been linked to a number of mental health conditions. But I suppose correlation is not necessarily causation. Might it be that someone with a mental illness just has naturally a lower level of these nutrients? Uh, That's an interesting question. I mean, it it could be. I've never thought about this question you've just asked me, whether some of us are just naturally lower in these, are designed to be naturally lower in these nutrients. I haven't thought about it that way before. It doesn't sound logical to me. It doesn't sound compatible with evolution. There are many, many differences between individuals. We are not all the same. But there are some things that all of us do have in common that we sometimes overlook. And as we all do need the same nutrients, we may need slightly different amounts of them, depending on what we're doing and how old we are and whether we're ill and that sort of thing. But we do all need the same set of nutrients. And if our nutrients fall below a certain level, then that's problematic. Well, this brings up another rabbit hole of of an issue within nutrition is that it's actually very, very difficult to understand precisely how much of a nutrient human beings need per day, what the daily requirement is of any nutrient. And that's because it's just a very difficult thing to study. So what we have for in the case of most nutrients is we have our best guesses as to how much of a particular nutrient we need to obtain every day and what the quote normal level should be. But there's no argument, there's no question about which nutrients we need. It's also very clear which uh, foods contain those nutrients in forms that are easy for us to access. So that's where I think everyone would agree that we all need the same nutrients. We can't live without them. If we don't have them, we'll become either very ill or die. And so there is broad agreement about that. What I've done in the book is rather than try to say, well, we need this much of this nutrient every day, is to stay away from those more controversial questions to say, okay, these are the nutrients we need. Where are the best sources of these nutrients and how can we make sure that we obtain them? And a second answer to your question, because it's such an interesting question that I haven't thought about before. A second answer to your question is there are certain nutrients, which it's very clear that many of us do not get enough of, because not only do you see the level is low, but you see actual symptoms and health effects of that nutrient being low. So for example, iron deficiency is extremely common around the world. B12 deficiency. There are certain nutrients where we can see that some people are not getting enough of these nutrients, and we can see exactly what the effects are of not having enough of that nutrient. Those are very clear examples of nutrient deficiencies. Others are sometimes a little fuzzier. And I think what will be a surprise to a lot of people is that your suggestion is that actually a number of vegetables, which we traditionally think of as healthy, may contain what you call 
anti-nutrients. Can you explain what those are? Yes, this is a topic of great interest to me. The nutritional differences between plant and animal foods are really profound. The plant does not exist to nourish a human being. The plant exists to nourish itself and its offspring, just as does any creature on the planet wants to do. So the plants do have nutrients in them. We can nourish ourselves with plants. However, it's more difficult to do. It requires more food because plants lack a lot of the nutrients that we do need. And even the ones that they do contain are sometimes harder for us to access. That's where the the anti-nutrients come in. We're often told that the most nutritious plant foods are the grains, beans, and nuts and seeds, uh, especially nuts and legumes, we're told are really rich in nutrients. And they are. I mean, they do have, uh, for example, lots of minerals in them. We're often told they're high in magnesium and they're high in iron and they're high in zinc. But it's very, very difficult to access those nutrients because the grains, beans, nuts, and seeds, they contain plant embryos. Those nutrients in those seeds are not meant for us. They are meant for the embryos. They're meant for the future generation of that plant. And so the plant's very clever. They've been around a lot longer than we have. And they've designed these chemicals to protect, to to really conserve those nutrients and make it difficult for us to access them. And a really good example of this is phytic acid or phytate. It's a mineral magnet that the plant creates and puts inside the seed to hold on to that mineral for the embryo's growth. So when we try to get that iron or magnesium or calcium or zinc out of that seed, it's very difficult because of these anti-nutrients that hold on like a magnet to those nutrients and, and make it very difficult for us to extract the nutrients from those foods and to absorb them. So there are anti-nutrients are widespread in the plant kingdom. And it's not that you can't work your way around these things. There are ways you can make the nutrients more available to yourself. It's just more difficult. In some cases, a few cases of certain nutrients, it's impossible to obtain a nutrient from plants. So this is why we do need, everyone needs at least some animal food in the diet, or they need to supplement extremely carefully, which most people don't and because they're not aware. So yeah, animal foods and plant foods are really, really different. And we're often told that animal foods are bad for us and plant foods are good for us. And I think that just that way of looking at things is not biologically correct, but it's also gives plants a lot more credit than they deserve. One of the emerging areas, like nutritional psychiatry, is the interest in microbiome science. Mm -hmm. Really popular subject. Now, if I get someone on the podcast, I've had various experts, for them, eating lots of fruit and vegetable is absolutely key. So they would be taking a position which was, in many ways, very, very different to yours. Yes. I want to make it clear that I'm not anti-plant, and I don't recommend that everybody remove all the plant foods from their diet. That's a strategy you can consider under certain circumstances, but that's really not my main message. Really, I want people to understand if you want a healthy brain, step one needs to have all the nutrients, and you need to make sure that it's receiving all those nutrients. And if you're eating mostly or all plant diets, especially if you're including certain types of plant foods like grains and legumes, it's going to be very difficult for you to provide your brain with all the nutrients it needs. So I just want people to be aware of that because that's something I think most people are not aware of. So I think that in terms of the microbiome, even experts in the field will tell you, and there are papers written about this, review papers have written about this, is that we don't know yet. It communicates with the brain via several different routes, both chemical routes and physical routes, and there are lots of highways connecting the brain and the microbiome. There's no question about that. And there's no question that microbiome health is important to brain health. You know, I wouldn't argue with that. 
What we don't know yet, and, and we really don't, is what foods you need to eat in order to make and keep your microbiome healthy. The science isn't there yet, but we still don't know everything about what destroys healthy microbiomes and what, if anything, can replenish a healthy microbiome. So I think this is an area with a giant question mark on top of it. There is as yet no science telling you that if you eat certain plant foods, you will improve the health of your microbiome. So that that level of evidence doesn't exist yet. I think one of the most compelling pieces of evidence you give in terms of how our bodies absorb or don't absorb something is the impact when we eat an oyster, depending on what we're eating the oyster with. I wonder if you could explain a little bit more about that. Yes, this is a, a study that was done several decades ago, and I wish it would be repeated because it's such a clear example of anti-nutrients in plants. The food on earth that is richest in zinc is the oyster. And so if you eat an oyster all by itself, your zinc levels will rise in the blood very nicely after you eat that oyster. You can see a peak in the bloodstream that's quite steep as your system absorbs that zinc. If you eat that oyster with black beans, then you absorb less than half of the zinc from the oyster. And if you eat that oyster with corn tortillas, you absorb virtually none of the zinc from that oyster. So this is a perfect example of a seed food, you know, a grain, a bean, and not a seed. So we've got black beans in this example and corn, corn tortillas in the example. Black beans are a legume. They are seeds. They are the seeds of, of a legume plant. They contain phytic acid, which is a very strong zinc magnet, which makes it much more difficult, not only for you to obtain zinc from the black beans themselves, but also from anything you eat with those black beans. That's how powerful a magnet it is. In the case of corn, it completely blocks your ability to obtain any zinc. So one of the best kept secrets in nutrition science is that just because a plant contains a nutrient doesn't necessarily mean we can access it. So you can look on the food label and it can say, oh, it's got, you know, it's rich in zinc or it's rich in magnesium or it's rich in calcium or what have you, iron. That doesn't mean you can, can get at those minerals. It does seem a really weird food combination, actually, oysters and corn to tell her. That was the other thing I thought when I read that study. <laughs> yes, I think you know, most people don't eat those things together. For lots of reasons. <laughs> right. So how do fermented vegetables fit into this? Does that make it easier or harder for us to absorb the nutrients or doesn't it make any difference? Yeah, so you can you can improve your access to the nutrients inside of plant foods by sometimes cooking will help to release some of those nutrients because it breaks down the fiber matrix a little bit. Sometimes fermenting, sometimes sprouting, cooking, boiling. Sometimes these processes will either destroy or weaken the anti-nutrient or the toxins in the plant foods because plant foods also have toxins, not just anti-nutrients to protect themselves. There are various different methods. A lot of these are traditional methods that ancient cultures have known about for a very long time. So nourishment, obviously key. The second step that you identify for brain health is protection, basically removing those foodstuffs that might harm us. Now, one of those that you identify as particularly problematic are vegetable seed oils. Why are those damaging? What we see in the grocery stores, we see vegetable oils. We see canola oil, sunflower oil, soybean oil. Etc. And so these are oils, you buy them in the bottle, they're clear, they have no taste, they have no color, they have no odor. These are industrially extracted from seeds, things like canola and sunflower seeds and soybeans and things like that. All of these are seed foods. So they start off as a seed, 
But uh, imagine how hard it might be for you at home to try to wrangle the oil out of a seed and purify it. It's really, really difficult. So it requires industrial extraction methods, which are really quite complex. So these seed oils or so-called vegetable oils, which I think is a lovely marketing term for, for these, the seed oils have really only been part of the human diet for about 100 years or so, and especially since the 1960s when the American Heart Association gave them their blessing in terms of saying these are heart-healthy fats. And you know, for people who want to learn more about this, Nina Teicholz's book, Big Fat Surprise, goes into all the history and politics and science of this. But for your listeners, it's very, very important to know that these are extremely new in our diet. Prior to 100 years ago, maybe about 2% of the fat in our diet would have been the type of fat that is very common in a vegetable oil, which is called linoleic acid. Seeds do naturally contain a little tiny bit of linoleic acid, but when you purify, when you extract and purify that oil, now you're pouring large percentage of that fat is linoleic acid. So these seed oils are everywhere. They're in baked goods, especially baked goods that are labeled vegan because they don't contain butter or lard. So these oils are very popular and they're inexpensive. The problem with these seed oils is that we did not evolve to take in this high amount of linoleic acid. We can handle a small amount of it. We've always been able to, but not great quantities of it. And so what's happening is in our bodies, the fat stores in our bodies, which are designed to store primarily saturated fat, are gradually filling up with linoleic acid, which is a polyunsaturated fat. A polyunsaturated fat is very unstable, it's fragile, and it's very prone to what's called oxidation. These are dangerous for our health. These very unstable, fragile fatty acids are accumulating in our system. Depending on which country you look at, 20% or so of the fat in your body may now be linoleic acid instead of 2% or 4%, which is what it was a very long time ago. I think in the States, it's about 21%. And here in Europe, I think about 11%, so not quite as bad. That's right. Again, you're catching up. Yeah. You know, this is a very new area of scientific exploration. We're trying to understand more about what the health effects of large amount of linoleic acid coming into the bodies might mean. There's some very intriguing studies coming out in terms of metabolic health and fatty liver disease and obesity and ins even insulin resistance. But what I'm concerned about is the brain. And so what I wanted to understand when I was writing the book was, what does the brain do with linoleic acid? Does the linoleic acid get into the brain? And if so, what happens then? And uh, this is, again, a very new area of research. But one of the fascinating things I came across was that the brain does absorb linoleic acid, but then it doesn't really seem to know what to do with it because the brain is not supposed to burn fatty acids for energy. In fact, when the brain burns fatty acids for energy, it creates a lot of excess inflammation and oxidative stress, which are two of the root causes of mental health. These cause damage to the brain. Inflammation, generally speaking, you need a certain amount, but beyond that, it's damaging for a whole range of disorders. Exactly. So inflammation is part of our natural immune response. If you have an injury or an infection, the first thing your immune system will do is mount an inflammatory response. And you need that as the first step in a healthy immune reaction to any threat. But you don't want too much of it. You don't want your system to be you know, in crisis mode and on fire all the time. You just want it to be sounding the alarm when it really needs to sound the alarm. But if you're taking in the wrong foods, you can be setting off this alarm system around the clock. And that's very damaging. If, if the brain burns fatty acids for energy instead of glucose or ketones or some of the other small molecules that it prefers to burn, there's much less 
inflammation and oxidative stress. But if it burns linoleic acid for energy, there's a tremendous amount of inflammation and oxidative stress. We're told that linoleic acid is essential. We're told that it's an essential fatty acid and that we must have it every day. And nothing could be further from the truth. The only reason we need linoleic acid theoretically is to make another fatty acid called arachidonic acid, which you can get from animal foods without uh, any risk to your health. But in any case, the linoleic acid that the brain absorbs does not get turned into arachidonic acid, which is what we're told it's supposed to do with it. It burns it for energy. It's just, I think, worth pausing and thinking about, you know, is this really something we want to be risking for no good reason? There's no reason to, to eat vegetable oil. Absolutely none. In fact, many, many reasons to avoid it. And I would strongly recommend that people remove as much of this from their diets as, as they can. So purely from the precautionary principle, there are other oils that you can easily use instead, such as olive oil or avocado oil. Absolutely. Fats in general from any whole food, from an avocado, from a nut, from a steak, from an egg, fats from natural whole foods, we've been eating them forever. I see no risk to consuming fats as part of whole foods, whether from plants or animals. The problem is when you extract fats and concentrate them and process them and refine them, you're doing something that we've never really done before in human history. And I think some of these consequences are becoming clear. Some of these are yet to be discovered. Now, another food group that you're recommending we should stop eating are refined carbs. So those things like grains, flours, sugar. But the interesting thing is we've been eating these for thousands of years, and it's only relatively recently that we've seen this huge increase in metabolic disorders, whether that's heart disease, stroke, or diabetes. So is it also about the quantities of refined carbs we're now eating? Yes, I think this is a very, very important distinction to make. My view is that carbohydrates from whole foods in and of themselves are not unhealthy, that we have been you know, consuming carbohydrates and fruits and root vegetables seeds, nuts, hundreds of thousands of years. So uh, clearly, carbohydrates themselves are not the root of our modern skyrocketing rates of metabolic disease. However, there's a quality and quantity issue, I think, partly at play. And then there's also all of the other things that have changed in our diet in the past hundred years or so at play. And I think these are all combining in spectacular fashion to destroy our health. And so it's not just about carbohydrates, but it is partly about the quantity and quality of the carbohydrates until you know very recently didn't have access to huge amounts of pulverized grain and sugar where previously uh, these were very hard to come by especially sugar so now flour and sugar and refined starches are in almost everything we eat and we're eating them all day long so it's one thing for the human body to be able to safely handle carbohydrates from whole foods it's another thing to ask the body to handle refined, purified, concentrated sources that, that turn instantly into glucose in your bloodstream without you really having to do anything. These pre-digested carbohydrates, you're flooding your system all day long and you can have too much of a good thing. Sure. But I suppose I was thinking complex carbohydrates aside, which would be the carbohydrates you find in vegetables, fruits, et cetera, refined carbohydrates, which I know you're not a fan of, but we have been eating those also really since the agricultural age. But the difference is now it's the level of refined carbs that we're eating. It's the degree of refinement and the quantity. 
It took an awful lot of labor to make flour. And one could argue that the arrival of flour on the human menu in grand scale, depending on where you lived, you know, six to 10,000 years ago, was probably not good for human health. There's some historical and archaeological evidence, anthropological evidence that suggests that that's the case. But regardless of, you know, whether flour was good or bad for the human race and human health, it's very clear from modern science, we can tell that eating too much sugar and flour, anything that is causing your insulin levels to spike too frequently, if you're eating too many of the wrong carbohydrates too often, your system will not be able to handle it. And you can see this on a glucose monitor and you can see this in your insulin levels. If your glucose is running too high too often, if your insulin levels are running too high too often, we know from decades of metabolic research that this is very damaging to the brain and the body. Also, we do have to factor in all of the other changes to our diet and, and to our lifestyle that have happened in the past 100 years, which are compounding that problem, worsening our metabolic health, not just in terms of sedentary lifestyle, but in terms of antibiotics, which may be affecting the microbiome and the toxins in the environment and other components of processed foods. We really don't understand all the effects of these chemicals that we're adding to our food. So it may not even be carbohydrates on their own in most cases. It may be that our food supply in general, our lifestyle in general is unhealthy. It's one thing to try to process some carbohydrate in the context of a healthy environment. It's another to take a high carbohydrate diet and high glucose and insulin levels. And then you add to that lots of vegetable oil and then lots of additives. You put in plastics and toxins and medications and all kinds of other issues. On top of that, you start eating your plants and animals that you rely upon for food the wrong way. And so I think it just becomes a snowball of problems. But if you have insulin resistance, if your insulin levels are running too high, and if your glucose levels are running too high, the simplest and most effective and efficient way you can reverse that is by eating a low-carbohydrate diet. Whether or not the carbohydrates caused the problem in the first place, we know how to correct it very quickly. Because someone who's become insulin resistant has become intolerant to carbohydrates. Exactly. It was interesting, actually, I, just an experiment. I wore a continuous glucose monitor a few months back. Most of the readings were fine, but actually I found that rice, and I saw someone else put their graphs up online, actually, and they had a similar pattern to mine. Again, reasonably healthy profile. But with rice, they noticed it kept up their glucose levels for much longer. And I tried it twice to see if the one-off was just a coincidence, but it wasn't. Eat a reasonably healthy diet anyway. I don't eat loads of carbs, but I do eat some. And no other carbohydrate came close to having that impact. Now, that's very interesting, Liz. So first of all, if people who are listening to the podcast haven't tried a glucose monitor, I highly recommend it if you can get your hands on one. Just to say that if you're in the UK, you don't need a prescription. But for US listeners, you do still, I think, need a prescription for a glucose continuous monitor. Yes. Isn't that ridiculous? Why? Why do you need a prescription for a glucose monitor? How are you going to harm yourself with a glucose monitor? Yes. Yeah, so you don't need a prescription in the UK and many other European countries either. And if you can afford one, even one will give you 10 to 14 days of really interesting insight into your metabolism, which is fascinating, right? So I'm really curious, Liz, what kind of rice was it? I tried with white rice and I tried with brown. I was also in a restaurant with a friend before we went out somewhere. And I thought, oh, I'll just try it again. Normally, you eat something and then your glucose goes back down to normal within an hour or two hours, something like that. Mm -hmm. This stayed high overnight and no other food came close to that. 
That's fascinating. So this was with brown as well as white? Yeah. The impact that it's had on me is I have stopped eating rice as a result. And I'm not someone who has a huge portion of rice. Not to want to bore people with my physical health, but I don't have a high BMI. All the other measures, my waist is less than half my height, et cetera, et cetera. That is fascinating. That's the magic of the, the continuous glucose monitor is you can learn so much and some of it will, will definitely be surprising and unique to certain individuals too. So not everybody will have the same response to different foods. And that's where the whole personalization piece comes in. I love that you did that experiment. And this probably isn't a good thing. I noticed when I had a chocolate bar, my body seemed to recover quite quickly. And that's obviously not the message that you want to give. Obviously, <laughs> And I want to be clear, I don't eat loads of chocolate bars, but I was experimenting with different food to see what happened. After the rice experiment, I was quite nervous and, and ironically, relatively small peak. It's so interesting. And of course, now the piece that's missing with a continuous glucose monitor is the insulin response. Yeah. The glucose response is really, really important, but it really is just half the story. The other thing we want to know is how much insulin did your body need to put out to get your glucose back under control. That's the real killer, the silent killer, driving most chronic health diseases, whether they're physical or emotional, cognitive, is high insulin levels because the body can deal with a lot of carbohydrate, but at what expense? So Georgia, over time, we produce more and more insulin. Exactly. So it looks like our glucose level is okay, but actually our body is having to work harder and harder to keep our glucose level under control. Exactly. In many cases, it can't keep it up forever. And that's type 2 diabetes. And type 2 diabetes is just one end stage form of insulin resistance. There are many others. So, you know, obesity and Alzheimer's disease and uh, heart disease, fatty liver disease, many other diseases are related to uh, longstanding insulin resistance and metabolic dysfunction. So wouldn't it be something to have a continuous insulin monitor? Yeah. That would be really illuminating. But continuous glucose monitors are fabulous. They, they help you understand which foods are safer for your metabolism. And I think people eat a lot more mindfully once they have some of that information. I mean, I probably have, I don't know, sort of 100-ish carbs a day, something like that. So I'm not a, a high carb eater, certainly in terms of Western standards. But the other thing that surprised me was how quickly I could push my blood sugar up or down, depending on what I ate. You know, I assumed eat more low carb for a week and then you'd see the result. But no. Within 24 hours, I can see my blood sugar go up or down. The glucose processing system is a really dynamic and responsive system. You can get your blood sugars under control within a matter of days. In most cases, if you've got type 2 diabetes, it'll be more difficult. But for most of us, that system responds quickly to how we eat. Because the glucose-based system, the carbohydrate-based energy system, is a really short-term system. You can't store much carbohydrate we burn through it quickly. And if we run low on it, we just make it ourselves. So it's a very, very quick response system, really dynamic. The fat-based metabolic system is a much longer, slower system to respond. And that's a blessing and a curse. It takes a while to get fat adapted. If you restrict your carbohydrates and try to switch over to mostly fat, that takes some time for the body to switch gears. But once you do, you can go for long periods of time without eating between meals, without getting hungry, because you can dip into those fat stores. We have a supply of virtually unlimited capacity to store fat. Most of us have you know months worth of fat on our bodies, even if we're not overweight. So it's a wonderful energy delivery system, very efficient and very smooth and reliable. So Georgia, when we eat foods like refined carbs, these tend to have an inflammatory effect on the brain. 
What do they actually do to our brain chemicals? Yeah, the brain is designed to burn glucose for energy. It's one of its favorite fuels. So the problem with glucose isn't glucose itself. The brain likes glucose. It's too much glucose. So if the glucose level in the brain is too high, that excess glucose literally sticks to proteins, DNA, and other important components of cells in the brain. It turns them, kind of caramelizes them into these sticky, dysfunctional, crippled molecules called advanced glycation end products. For short, you say AGEs, AGEs. Uh, That's a good name for them because they're largely responsible for premature aging of the tissues, including the brain. If you allow these to accumulate left to their own devices, they will interfere with brain cell signaling. So the brain tries to clear them away. So it has an immune system. It mounts an inflammatory response. It releases inflammatory cytokines. It releases what are called oxygen-free radicals. And these are the first responders of your brain's immune system. And they are to sound the alarm and say, hey, we've got a problem. We have these caramelized clusters building up everywhere, gumming up the works. Let's clear them away. After after the system has cleared them away, those SOS signals are supposed to quiet down. And then there's supposed to be a healing phase so that the neighborhood is restored (laughs) to its previous peaceful, peaceful state. But if you're eating the wrong way and you're getting these glucose spikes in your bloodstream and in your brain three, four, five, six times a day, which is how most people are eating now, then instead of this temporary controlled, targeted inflammation and oxidative stress, you have chronic, uncontrolled inflammation and oxidative stress. And that is very damaging for the brain. You certainly don't want the brain to be in crisis mode around the clock. It physically damages all of the structures of the brain. So eating too much sugar over time, it's really paradoxical, will make it more and more difficult for your brain to use that sugar for energy. It's just flooded with sugar. It can't cook. It's flooded with sugar. And those high insulin levels that it takes to manage that sugar, they're making the brain over time more and more insulin resistant. So the glucose will still flow in, no questions asked, because the brain doesn't want any barriers to glucose entering the brain. It needs glucose. It makes it easy for glucose to come in. So even if you have severe metabolic disease or type 2 diabetes or other end-stage metabolic, your brain will never be running low on glucose. What you have to worry about is low brain insulin. The more insulin you bombard your brain with over time, the harder it will be for that insulin to cross into the brain because the surface of the brain, the blood-brain barrier, has receptors that escort insulin into the brain. Those receptors become over time damaged. That system can't handle being bombarded with insulin all the time. And so then what you've got is a brain swimming in a sea of glucose and still starving to death because the insulin can't get in. This really brings us to the third stage of your argument. We've got to nourish and protect the brain, but we've got to energize it. And these high glucose levels stop the brain being able to energize effectively. Exactly. That's called cerebral glucose hypometabolism. And all it means It's a fancy word for sluggish brain glucose processing. You can measure glucose processing in the brain using these PET scans, which look at glucose utilization in various areas of the brain. Scientists can see sluggish brain glucose processing on these PET scans, and you can see it in women with insulin resistance in their 20s. So even though they don't have any cognitive symptoms whatsoever, they're on the path to Alzheimer's disease without knowing it. Because it takes a long time to be aware of the cognitive side effects. But, you know, I worked in college settings for what, 13 years? 
uh, as a college psychiatrist, I can't tell you how many times I heard my students say to me, you know, I just feel like my memory isn't as good as when I was in high school. I don't think I'm as sharp as I was in high school. I just don't process information as well as I used to. I have to work harder. I heard that so many times. That shouldn't be in your 20s. (laughs) In your 20s, you should have robust brain capacity. And it now seems that there's more and more mental conditions being linked to metabolic disorders from schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, OCD, various forms of depression. Yes. Virtually every psychiatric condition that's been looked at, there are problems with brain glucose processing, if not driving that disease, certainly contributing to its severity and its course. And so, for example, we know that people with bipolar disorder, and this is from the really excellent work of Dr. Cynthia Kalkin, who is a metabolic psychiatrist at the University of Dalhousie, at Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia, She has found that in her patients with bipolar disorder, if they also have insulin resistance, then they are less likely to respond to the mood stabilizer lithium. They are more likely to have a chronic, severe, deteriorating course of their illness and more likely to have what's called rapid cycling of their mood. So much more severe course. She also found that if you reverse that insulin resistance, in this case, using a medication, that people with depression in her study improved substantially. 90% of them went into remission after many years of not responding to other types of treatment. So insulin resistance is playing a major role. And the important thing about her work is it shows it's not just correlation. And actually there is causation there. Absolutely. She's the first person to show that if you reverse insulin resistance, then you could reverse symptoms of a serious mental illness. That shows that insulin resistance isn't just an innocent bystander. It isn't just a coincidence. It is playing a direct role in the severity of that illness. And how easy is it to reverse insulin resistance? Very, very easy. You can use medications that work sometimes. That's what she did. Didn't work for everyone. Worked for about half of her patients. But you can also just eat less carbohydrate. You take all that pressure off your system. Of course, most of your listeners won't have bipolar disorder. It's not a very common condition. It's maybe one to 2% of the population. But what your listeners may be interested to know is that Alzheimer's disease, which all of us are afraid of getting, we know this from the work of Dr. Suzanne de Lamont and many other people now around the world, insulin resistance is not just an innocent bystander in Alzheimer's disease either. It is in fact a causal driving force. In fact, one of the only forces you can really do much about you have tremendous control over this risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. And the sooner you turn that around, the better, because it takes a good at least 20 years for Alzheimer's disease to develop. It's developing very silently in the background. So it's not just doesn't pop up in your 70s. It's already happening. If you're eating the wrong way, you're already putting yourself at very high risk, uh, no matter how old you are. So basically, energizing our brain means keeping our blood sugar levels within a healthy range. And the important thing is we want to prevent conditions rather than having to treat them once they've developed. Yes, because Alzheimer's disease is a neurodegenerative disease. It's basically killing the brain slowly. Once those cells are gone, they're gone. You can't get them back. So the earlier you intervene, the better. You want to keep your glucose levels in a healthy range and your insulin levels in a healthy range. Now, Georgia, you recommend things we can all do to improve our diets and then explain three approaches in particular for those people with a mental health condition? Yes. So the core of your diet should be non-dairy animal foods. Going one level out, the next layer of that, outside of that, is the fruits and vegetables that you tolerate well. 
And this can be a very wide variety if you're robustly healthy, or it might be a narrower variety if you have some insulin resistance or gut damage or other food sensitivities. And then beyond that, you know, sort of the grains and the beans and the nuts and the seeds, all the other things that one could have in a whole foods diet, those are riskier. They're still nutritious, but they do have some, some risks involved that people need to know about. So those are on the outer layer of the core. If you have a mental health condition and you want to as quickly and efficiently identify whether or not your diet is, is driving your mental health condition, I recommend for efficiency's sake, the quickest way to do this is to narrow your diet down to what I call a quiet diet. There's a quiet paleo diet. There's a quiet keto diet. There's a quiet carnivore diet. These are uniquely modified plans that not just stick to those whole food principles that I was just describing, but they also eliminate some of the more problematic foods, some of the common culprits in terms of gut health and brain health. So for example, I recommend that people avoid cassava root or tapioca starch because it contains cyanide, which is a mitochondrial poison. One of the worst meals at school was tapioca pudding. So that's no loss. <laughs> so, you know, this is one example. I recommend that people avoid nightshades because they have neurotoxic properties, that they avoid flaxseed, and, and that all of these diets are also quiet on the metabolism. So the quiet paleo diet does put a certain limit on carbohydrates to about 90 grams of carbohydrate per day. So that's a little gentler on your glucose and insulin system. So kind of what you're doing, you're eating about 100 grams of carbohydrate per day. And depending on the quality of those carbohydrates, that could be a really nice plan for somebody who does not have insulin resistance yet. That could be a very safe way of eating. It depends on your glucose levels and your insulin levels and your overall health and your goals. I've created these plans specifically for people who want to make some dietary changes in service of their mental health as efficiently as they can. They can try the different ones. They can try, you know, a quiet paleo diet, a quiet keto, quiet carnivore, whatever they choose, or they can progress through them. Uh, to try to get at the root of their problems. If they find they do well on one of these diets, then they can try expanding the diet to see, okay, where's their safe outer limit? Your goal is to try to find the broadest diet that you can safely tolerate and enjoy. That's going to be a different place for everybody, depending on, on your, your health and your goals. So these quiet diets are designed to be quiet on metabolism, quiet on the, the nervous system, quiet on the gut. I hope I've made this clear in the book. I don't think that everybody needs to eat this way long-term, but I do think that some people will. We've got the paleo, the keto, and the carnivore. The paleo allows you to eat the widest range of foods. The keto, highly restricted in the carbohydrates you can eat, and the carnivore, the most restrictive of all the diets. Exactly, exactly. So a paleo diet, for those who aren't familiar, a paleo diet, it attempts to mimic the diet that our ancestors would have eaten before agriculture. So it's, it's anything you'd find in the wild that doesn't need to be processed. It's whole plant and animal foods. It's basically meat and eggs and nuts and fish and starchy roots and vegetables and fruits, anything you would find if you're foraging, hunting and foraging. A standard paleo diet allows unlimited amounts of food, including unlimited amounts of fruits and starchy vegetables. And that's great if you have a healthy metabolism. But if you, like most of us, have damaged your insulin signaling system and you have some insulin resistance, you may not be able to eat as many carbohydrates as you want. You might need to even pull back on the fruits and starchy vegetables, for example. That's where the carbohydrates are. 
So in my quiet paleo diet, it limits the fruits and starchy vegetables to 90 grams of carbohydrate per day. So it allows you to eat fruits and roots, but puts a cap on it. Now, the last time you were on the podcast, you talked about using keto diet to treat serious mental illness. You worked with a French colleague. It seems now there's an increasing number of studies which are reporting improvement in mental health. So I think it'd be really helpful if we could highlight some of the key ones. Absolutely. And your listeners may be interested to know that some of the most fascinating work in this field is being done by Dr. Ian Campbell, who is a researcher at the University of Edinburgh. He has bipolar disorder himself, but it's been in remission for seven years because when he was trying to lose weight, he stumbled upon the Atkins diet. He you know, dramatically lowered his carbohydrate intake to try to lose weight. And lo and behold, he noticed some mental health benefits. When he went to a, a stricter ketogenic diet, he noticed that his bipolar symptoms went into complete remission within a number of days. And this was so striking to him after suffering for so many years. He is now one of the world's leading researchers in the field of bipolar disorder. And what he studies is the ketogenic diet. And he just uh, published a couple of papers related to a brand new pilot study that he's been conducting over the past year or so, where he has taken uh, volunteers with bipolar disorder and asked them to follow a ketogenic diet with the guidance of expert dietitians. And he's been following them now. He's discovered some really remarkable things. He noticed that the brain levels of a neurotransmitter called glutamate were markedly decreased on a ketogenic diet, more than any drug or any other treatment has ever been able to accomplish. High glutamate levels are one of the markers of bipolar disorder. You don't want too much glutamate in the brain. It can be toxic. It's called glutamate excitotoxicity. It overstimulates the brain. Another thing he found was that the higher the ketone levels were, the more likely people were to experience mental health benefits from the diet. This was a pilot study to demonstrate whether or not the diet was safe, and it was safe for these patients. It was also designed to try to figure out whether patients could follow the diet long enough to do a study. And there was a very high participation rate and adherence rate to the diet. Almost everybody in the study was able to follow the diet almost every single day. So for people who are on a ketogenic diet, their bodies are running on fat, not glucose. Yes. A ketogenic diet is basically any diet that lowers your insulin levels enough to turn on fat burning and generate meaningful levels of ketones in the blood. And so for most people, the, the easiest way to do this is to dramatically reduce your carbohydrate intake because carbohydrate is what drives insulin levels up the most. So you eat a very low carbohydrate diet, usually you know about 20 grams of carbohydrate per day or less. What that does is it forces your body to start burning fat. That's a very good thing. Breaks that fat down into ketones, which are these little uh, fragments of fat that can be easily burned by the brain and other organs. So they take over a lot of the energy production. Not all of it. The brain and body will still use some glucose, but your body will shift from burning mostly glucose all the time to burning mostly fat and ketones all the time. And it's a completely different operating system. So the ketogenic diet that, that they were following was very low in carbohydrate and high in fat, moderate in protein. And so they were in ketosis, they had measurable levels of ketones in the blood, and the higher the ketone levels were, the better they felt. And I think that's really important. That's what we see in our clinical work too, in many cases, not all, but in many cases, it makes a difference um, how vigorously you're burning fat and creating those ketones. So what those ketones do is they cross easily into the brain no questions asked, they waltz right in and uh, they start picking up the slack. 
if your brain has sluggish glucose processing for whatever reason, whether it's because you're insulin resistant or there's some genetic issue with how you burn glucose or, or there's been some damage to, to your brain in some way, the ketones can then march in and take over a lot of those responsibilities and they can supplement the brain's energy requirements. There's research also at Stanford. Dr. Shabani Sethi has been conducting a site. It's not published yet, but her preliminary data are very intriguing in terms of, again, high, the higher the ketones. This is in people with bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, so psychosis as well as mood issues. Uh, what she has found is that, again, the higher the ketones, the, the, the better the outcome seem to be. And what she's seen is so many metabolic benefits to the diet, you know, people losing weight and their triglyceride levels come down and their blood pressure improves. All of these other markers of poor metabolic health also improve. Instead of side effects of the intervention, which we see with medications, you get side benefits, lots of other health benefits from this way of eating that improve mental health as well as physical health. And you touched on it a moment ago, Georgia, but is there not an elephant in the room? If there's a link between mental health conditions and a number of metabolic disorders, is it not a problem that many of the drugs we use to treat these mental illnesses actually worsen metabolic health through, for example, increasing blood sugar levels? I'm so glad you asked that question because the medications, especially some of the more powerful and potent and effective medications, the antipsychotic medications and the mood-stabilizing anticonvulsant medications, they are simultaneously the most effective medicines we have as psychiatrists, especially when someone's in crisis and also the most metabolically risky. The position that patients have been in for so long is trying to make a decision between their mental health and their physical health. Because when you take an antipsychotic medication like olanzapine or risperidone or quetiapine, yes, it may help you quiet the you know, voices. It may help you with suicidal thinking. It may help with severe anxiety, agitation. It may keep you out of the hospital or save your relationship. It may do some remarkable things for you if you're lucky. They don't work for everybody. And of course, for some people, there's a rare side effect where their suicidality will worsen from the drug rather than improve. Of course, all of these medications can go either way. But when these medications work, which they sometimes do, um, I've seen it myself hundreds of times, the price that people have to pay for that relief is sometimes their metabolic health. These medications shorten life. In many cases cause significant amount of weight gains, almost impossible to lose. A sluggishness, apathy, sexual dysfunction, weight gain, high blood pressure, and type 2 diabetes. These are all very serious risks of these medications, and they're not uncommon. And so these shave years off of people's life and, and, and reduce quality of life as well. So that's a really tough decision to make. One of the lovely things about a ketogenic diet is you can, if you find these medicines useful, you can stay on these medicines and you can add the ketogenic diet to these medicines and counteract a lot of these metabolic side effects of the medications. And we saw that in the French study that you were asking about. If you add the diet to the medications, people, their health improves despite the fact that they're taking these metabolically risky medications. And what we should say is so far, and obviously this is an emerging field, there seem to be much greater effect sizes in what the researchers are reporting on ketogenic drug trials than have been achieved so far through medication. Yes, six to 10 times the effect of a ketogenic diet in our French study compared to standard drug trials for antidepressants and antipsychotics. The magnitude of the improvement that you see uh, with antidepressants and antipsychotics is very small compared to with a ketogenic diet. So it's not that medications can't have an impact, and it's not that they don't have a role. 
it's that the diet is a really much more powerful. It's not just trying to target one neurotransmitter here or there. It's really changing the way your whole brain does business. In my own clinical work, this is the most powerful intervention I have in my toolbox. But does it mean perhaps we need to rethink how we use the medications? And as you say, in moments of crisis, you can't hang about probably and wait for someone to go on a ketogenic diet and see the results in two or three weeks. So might there be an argument for looking at using these medications in the short term to get a situation under control and then moving across to a ketogenic diet approach? 100%. I teach other clinicians around the world how to safely use a ketogenic diet to treat people with mental health disorders. And I've been teaching that course for over three years now. One of the things that I make sure I help people understand is when you should not use a ketogenic diet. And when you should not use a ketogenic diet is when someone's in crisis. You know, it takes a number of weeks and sometimes several months to get the full benefit of these diets. If someone's in crisis, suicidal thinking, um, agitation, self-injury, anything like that, you certainly don't want to wait three to six to nine to 12 weeks for a diet to take effect. Safety first. So you really want to stabilize the situation, provide the care, whether it's hospitalization or certain medications, uh, supportive interventions, all of those other things we know can be so useful, and then bring up the ketogenic diet once the person is stable. However, the other thing I would say is that if you are in a mental health crisis, uh, there, there's no reason why you couldn't at least clean up your diet while you're waiting to start a ketogenic diet, which is what all of us should do anyway, whether we have a mental health issue or not. And I make this point in the book, I, I lay out simple dietary changes anybody can make without having to do these special diets, without having to go paleo, without having to do ketogenic diet. Really just first, just take the junk out. Stop eating all the packaged and processed foods, which are all risk and no benefit. Why not start thinking also about other things you can do to support good brain health, like improving the quality of your diet and taking out the, the sugars, the flours, the refined carbohydrates, and the refined vegetable oils. And if you focus on those things, you automatically will be removing almost all the processed foods from your diet because that's where those ingredients are. If you just eat whole foods, whole plant and animal foods, if you prefer a vegan diet or vegetarian diet, just make sure that you're supplementing properly and again, following whole foods principles as much as you can. But Georgia, just going back to the point about the side effects of these psychotropic drugs, you're suggesting that perhaps patients can go on a ketogenic diet to reduce the side effects. But from what you were suggesting earlier, the worse someone's metabolic health, the more severe their mental illness may be. So isn't there a bit of a contradiction if, let's say, I have severe bipolar disorder and you keep upping my medication dosage? That may at some level help control the disease, but it's making my metabolic health worse, which might mean long term, my bipolar disorder also gets worse. Yes, it's very difficult to study this, to really get to the bottom of this, because as people age, other things happen to their health that may be affecting the course of their illness. But I'm convinced by the biology that if you're giving a medication, which we know worsens metabolic health, and we know that metabolic health is critical to good brain health, then of course, what you're saying makes perfect sense, is that the medications are on some level helping and also hurting at the same time. And this is true of every medication in the world, right? So every medication in the world has its risks and its side effects, and you pay a price for its benefits. Every medicine, not just psychiatric medicines, there's always a risk-benefit analysis to be, to be taken into consideration. Just like with any medication, I want to use the least amount possible. My belief and my, my clinical practice bears this out 
is that the healthier your diet is and the healthier your metabolism is, the less medication you may need. I work with a lot of patients who have not come completely off their medications, but a lot of patients have been able to really significantly reduce the number of medications they're taking and the dosages of the medications they're taking. And in some cases, they're able to come completely off their medicines. And in many cases, they're able to not need to start medicines in the first place. But does it mean psychiatrists around the world, whatever treatment modes they're using, they should at least be doing metabolic evaluations of patients before they put them on any drug? Thank you for mentioning that. Yes, everybody with a mental health condition deserves a metabolic evaluation. If you discover some uh, markers of poor metabolic health, let's say high triglycerides, blood pressure is high, or insulin levels are high, or blood glucose is high, waist circumference is more than half your height. If you see any of these really simple to diagnose markers of insulin resistance, then you can have a conversation with that patient about, well, your metabolic health could use some improvement. While it may be discouraging for you to see these numbers, these numbers give me hope because when I look at these numbers, I see opportunity. If your metabolic health is part of what's running your mental health show and we improve your metabolic health, I wonder what could happen for your mental health. And these numbers are easy to turn around. In a number of weeks, you can see dramatic improvement in your insulin, in your glucose levels, in your triglycerides, and even in your waist circumference, if you have the right information and know what to do. I think that even for clinicians around the world who don't feel comfortable or confident using a ketogenic diet in their practice, and most don't, there's so much you can do just by having that conversation and just watching those numbers and counseling people about just good sense, common sense dietary interventions, such as let's eat some real whole foods instead of junk. Let's just practice that for a month and see how that goes. Even that, especially if someone's younger, sometimes that's all that needs to happen. Well, Georgia, thank you so much for sparing the time to talk today. It's such a fascinating field and great to talk to someone who's absolutely at the cutting edge and one of the pioneers. So thank you so much. I really appreciate having me back on. Always really enjoy talking with you, Liz. Thank you. Always great to talk to you too, Georgia. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Hope you enjoyed the latest episode of the podcast. And if you've enjoyed the show, if you could leave a review, that would be much appreciated. It really helps. Many thanks for listening. Bye for now.